0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Dose of Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, Don Antonucci, Senior Vice President of Growth at Blue Shield of California. My guest today is Patrick J. Kennedy. Many of you know of Patrick during his time in Congress. He was the lead author of the landmark Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which requires insurers to cover treatment for mental health and substance abuse, use disorders, no more restrictively than treatment for illnesses of the body. As founder of the Kennedy Forum, he now unites advocates, policymakers, and business leaders to advance evidence-based practices and policies in mental health and addiction. In 2017, he was appointed to the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis. He currently serves as co-chair of the Mental Health and Suicide Prevention National Response to COVID-19, an initiative of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. Thanks for joining me, Patrick.
1: Great to be with you, Don. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations on the uh, podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I know many of our listeners are obviously going to be familiar with the Kennedy name, particularly in the, in the political world. Give us a sense of your background and how you became an advocate for healthcare and particularly mental health inequity.
1: Well, uh, thank you so much. I I have to tell your listeners, first off, that uh, you kind of got me by default. And and that's because um, I became the sponsor of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act pretty much because no one else wanted to be first name on a bill with the words mental and addiction in the title for fear that the press would ask them, you know, do they have a mental illness or addiction? Of course, that's not a uh, any question or series of questions a, a politician wants to uh, answer because then there's 35 more questions on you know how's your family member doing how are you doing what medications are you on and are you all right as i said found myself as the first signature on the bill when i was the youngest member of congress at the age of 27 from the smallest state in the country rhode island and the more minority party which should give your listeners a sense that um, I was the lowest lowest guy on the totem pole, and yet I got to put my name first, which is so contrary to the way Congress works, because if it's a big bill, as this should have been a big bill, and it is a big bill in terms of its um, kind of landmark um, reform and change to ensure that the brain is included in insurance coverage, um, you would think that you'd have all the senior members fighting over who gets to have the pride of authorship and, and this was one bill, which just is another sign of stigma that uh, no one really quite wanted to be that far in front on. I got to be the sponsor because I had been in treatment myself as a 17 year old and the guy that I was in drug treatment with uh, wrote a story about being in drug treatment with me and sold it to the National Enquirer uh, for $10,000 dollars. and, and uh, I ended up on the cover of the National Enquirer. Uh, reading about myself as a cocaine addict and a benzodiazepine addict, and as an alcohol addict, and and um, this was before I ultimately was brought down by opioids um, and uh, stimulants. But the the bottom line is that um, I, I was blessed to have this uh, legislative journey that, ironically, kind of paralleled my uh, personal journey of trying to get adequate coverage and, um, chronic care management, you know, for, for my mental illness and addiction as I, uh, as I got for my asthma, I'm a very severe asthmatic and, um, constantly kind of going in for checkups. And of course, with my mental health, which is what's really going to kill me, uh, there aren't those, uh, protocols in place in, 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 healthcare to stay on top of my mental health, like, like my physical health. And I, and I learned that, most kind of um graphically, when I got out of Congress, because my mental illness was uh, was progressing as as it will always do for any one of these illnesses, it, these are progressive illnesses, and they'll never get better with time unless you uh, you know rest the illness and get into treatment and, and recovery. Um, my new primary care doc asked me to tell him about you know my medical status and of course I told him I have a family history of stroke and of course he wrote into his computer you know I said I have a family history of cancer and kind of wrote that in I said I you know have uh I've had a tumor in my spinal cord a long surgery 14 hours to remove it oh that's you know he put that in his computer and and then of course I'm an asthmatic and uh, but most importantly, I'm an addict. I'm a, someone who's been addicted to opioids and alcohol and any, any mood or my-altering substance I've ever been given. So at the conclusion, all he did was want to look at the scar in my back, and he wanted to uh, ask me how much I took my rescue inhaler. There wasn't a question in that um, kind of computer-prompted series of questions that would ask about my mental health or addiction. And and to just, you know, test the guy, I, I said, uh, you know, you saw the scar on my back, you know, that thing really flares up. And if I'm on the road, I think I might need a little, some Percocets or Oxycontins, you know, whatever you have, just just to I get back to you. You know, kind of use the same line I've been using for the last uh, 15 years, before there was a prescription drug monitoring program in place. And I could basically get as many doctors as I could to write for me in an, any number of pharmacies. I, I looked at pharmacies like liquor stores. I'd move around just so none of them would catch on to the fact that I was a frequent flyer. And, you know, he started to write out a prescription. Then he stopped. He said, hey, didn't you tell me you were someone who's uh, addicted? And I said, yes, I, I don't need that, actually. I was just testing you. Of course, he wasn't happy uh, that you know i'm his new patient after the way i handled that but it it's the truth you know our system of health care is not acculturated to treat mental health and addiction in the same way as they treat other physical illnesses but that's changing and i'm really excited don to be on this uh, podcast with you and your interest in the the interest of blue cross blue shield california and really trying to Uh, lead the way and the integration of mental health into overall healthcare.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Patrick. And when you think about, um, you know, it's been over a decade since that's been passed. Have you seen the change happen in a positive way in terms of people really understanding what needs to happen to uh, make mental health uh, something that's, one, focused and destigmatized a bit? But also um, actually find ways that uh, makes it equitable as well for folks to uh, receive mental health. You are in a unique position in some ways too, um, both to the you know negative probably in some ways being you know a public figure, but also to the positive with resources, family. I think you've mentioned in the past. So that that'd be where I I've just have you seen a progression and in, in sort of positive momentum? And then t- tell me about health equity as it relates to this.
1: Yes. So this really is about health equity. Um, in a sense, um, the parity law was a medical version of civil rights. It's basically saying people who suffer from brain illnesses shouldn't be, um, taken care of, you know, in a substandard way when compared to their other physical illnesses. I mean, you just think about it, it's kind of classic case of, uh, separate and unequal. And as you know, as a payer, you know too often in the past, we have separated mental health from physical health as if the two can be separated. And then you've put different kind of um, models of reimbursement around when the really true value uh, is the whole health and the value that mental health can be to the rest of your physical health. And if you look at it in that way, then the mental health really has a, a huge ROI beyond just the you know mediation of symptoms on the mental health side, it can actually reduce some of the severe you know, consequences of, of active, addictive thinking and action on your physical side, uh, particularly on all the chronic illnesses that are bedeviling payers as the most costly, um, because often those patients are non-compliant, you know, they've got cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and the like. And, and if they're not getting treated for their depression or they're not taking their medications properly or getting the, on top of these illnesses, it just balloons the costs. They obviously cycle in and out of ERs. And for the social side, um, they're often so- cycling in and out of our jails and, and our criminal justice system, which was why this is also an issue of, of uh, um, equity within our uh, our justice system, because we really shouldn't have the justice system as a Uh, De facto substitute for a lack of a mental health system, which is what is really driving a lot of our criminal justice costs, or uh, the the inordinate amount of time the police officers have to take to handle people who are homeless and are active in psychosis or active in their addiction and whose whose quote unquote criminal behavior is driven really by an unaddressed addiction or mental illness. So this has got equity all across of it, and of course. Um, minority communities are even more stigmatized um, in many respects and, and of course the lack of access. But, but here's the picture. So it's prevention we need, we need treatment and then we need recovery. Those are three dimensions that we just don't have today. We have got acute episodic based treatment, right? But we don't have this treated as a chronic illness and we're not looking upstream. Like my friend Paul Gianfrito's head of Mental Health America says, we need to treat this before stage four, right? We wouldn't wait till cancer got to be stage four. But with mental illness and addiction, we do that all the time. We wait, oh, it's not my business. When all the telltale signs are people are in a progressive path towards uh, really pathologizing their illness by not getting it treated and ending up in the criminal justice system or ending up, you know, dying at a premature age, which is unfortunately what happens to so many people with these illnesses, who, by the way, have a reduced life expectancy of over 20 years. So, and these are illnesses of the young. I mean, 75% of them occur before age uh, 25. And so really the answer lies going upstream. And uh, now we have the back to school dollars coming down. And it's clear if our kids are not learning social emotional skills, stress management, coping mechanism sc- skills early in life, then they, they have maladaptive responses to the stress, by the way, which includes you know overexposure to technology and the lack of real human connection. And of course this pandemic, which has thrown everybody off, but our kids have really been adversely impacted dramatically so in this last uh, two years.
0: Yeah, thank, thanks for sharing that. And I, I just want to mention, too, um, you know, on your piece on equity, you actually you tweeted something today and I retweeted it around cultural humility is a key to healing racial trauma. And I thought that was a really uh, good article that, that absolutely ties with mental health. And then on your point around uh, children, um, you know, we know that uh, a stat I was looking at is that one in five U.S. adults live with a mental illness, and with young adults, you know, even age 18 to 25, um, they've got the highest prevalence of mental illness, you know, which is close to 30 uh, percent. And I, I would say that one thing I'm particularly proud of uh, at Blue Shield of California that, that we're working on is something that's called the uh, the Blue Sky Initiative, and what that is, is basically it's ways to support mental health for California middle and high school students, and it's uh, it's something where we've you know been able to have more than 450 students receive counseling, you know 800 teachers have been trained in mental health awareness. So it's a huge um, important focus area for us as well. And I think the pandemic and and this is kind of where I wanted to go to next is has really I think pre pandemic mental health was a big issue in healthcare, and there was a lot of focus, whether it was employers or children. Now with the pandemic, I mean, it's just accelerated with isolation and, you know, all the things that come with the stress and 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 the different ways people are working and living. Can you speak a little bit about what you've seen um, with the pandemic as it relates to mental health?
1: Well, let me uh, thank you for that work on the blue skies and focusing on our kids. My wife is a uh, veteran in the public school system, uh, 14 years as a public school teacher, and uh, she can tell you that her colleagues uh, are ill-equipped to dealing with all the challenges that their students are bringing to school, most notably trauma. And of course, this last year has been a collective trauma on all kids, but this on top of what a lot of kids have uh, always been bringing to school as a result of poverty and exposure to violence and coming from a home where there may also be addiction and mental illness in the home, you know, we're really leaving our kids behind at an age where we can't afford. What we really need to do is change our education system to ensure that social-emotional learning is embedded in education. I mean, think of it, you know, you test your eyesight, you know, because you can't learn if you're not looking and seeing when reading. You're testing your hearing because if you can't hear, you can't learn. Well, if your amygdala is on fire because of trauma, you're not going to be able to learn either. So why aren't we screening for that every school year? Why aren't we embedding in, in education the ability for us to have the ability to absorb information, which is directly related to how much of our mental health is is, is intact? So mindfulness and all that stuff. So I would just say, you know, there's a political movement. I'm not talking Democrat or Republican, but just generally, if we're smart about this as a nation, we should move quickly in this direction. And of course, if California leads the way, as it has on so many progressive initiatives, that would be great for our country. But even still, I'd encourage you with your Association of Blues, uh, Kim Keck, who runs your National Association's former Rhode Island head of Blue Cross Blue Shield, great friend, great dynamic leader. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that as payers, you need to get ahead of, because what, all these kids are going to grow up and be, you know, hopefully subscribers of yours, right? But whether they're yours or your other payers, all of us collectively, including the biggest payer of all, which is the federal government, have an interest in getting in early to pay for these things, which may not be incented in the current financial reimbursement system, which is what we need to look at, because- If we don't get in early, there's not going to be enough money to pay our way out of trying to correct all those kids who we could have saved from going off the end, uh, but who we knew we were going to be too late to if we've waited till their 20s in order to wrap our arms around them. So I'm all for getting in early. And this pandemic, I think, has highlighted this urgency uh, like no other time in American history.
0: Uh, I was looking at the Kennedy Forum website and, you know, one of the quotes on there is we will revolutionize the way mental health care is delivered in America and create a future where diagnosis and treatment covers the brain and the body. Tell us more about that vision and uh, share more about the work that the Kennedy Forum is doing that you're particularly proud of.
1: So um, we started the Kennedy Forum on the anniversary of my uncle, President Kennedy, signing the original Community Mental Health Act of 1963, which he signed just shortly before he was assassinated. And he he really pushed that bill because it was my aunt, Rosemary, who was, by the way, the real uh, inspiration for the Special Olympics now, which is in 190 plus countries around the world, it just started in my aunt Eunice Shriver's backyard. Uh, because of her compassion for her sister and the families that like hers um, didn't know what to do when there was so much shame around people with intellectual disabilities. But what people don't realize till now is when looking back at my Aunt Rosemary, she had a, um, a co-occurring mental illness on top of uh, an intellectual and developmental disability. And we, in, even in mental health, don't even can wrap our arms around the fact that people with autism, for example, have high, much higher rates of anxiety and it's exacerbated by their isolation because of their developmental disability. But we we just need a more comprehensive approach. So when I say revolution, we what we should be doing is attaining our best uh, you know, abilities, like like the vision of Special Olympics: be all you can be. Just and uh, as Americans, we all want something that makes a prettier. More handsome, more beautiful, athletic, you know, richer, you know, anything that makes us feel like we're more. And uh, there's nothing that's going to make us feel like more than better mental health because so much of what's driving that hole in the soul, as we like to say in recovery, filling ourselves up with money, prestige, power, is this emptiness inside. um, And you know i really believe like the um president kennedy in another venue, got it right when you know he started the special forces in the green berets and um they refer to mental health as a force multiplier like who would have thought that that boy these are the strongest soldiers in our military but they get more mental health per soldier than any other branch of the military and you'd say to yourself well why do these green berets and navy seals you know, they jump out of the planes. they swim underwater without breathing for five miles, they hit the beach, they're speaking six languages, they take out their target, they're reading to their kids by dinnertime. Why do they need mental health? And if you come to look at the military's view of it, they look at it as a, as they said, force multiplier, where it's about addressing anything that will impede the clarity of their thought. In other words, they don't want our Military, when they're in the cloak of darkness in some foreign place and trying to take out a terrorist, to have intrusive thoughts, like the rest of us have throughout the day. and because it'll compromise the mission. And we need to have that same esprit de corps, right? Because as Americans, you know, we landed on the moon, you know, we we have been leaders in, you know, democracy, oldest democracy, although it's challenged now where science has been our export around the world, where we're we're constantly innovating. Let's take that entrepreneurial spirit and that esprit de corps and let's go after the single greatest frontier, which is the last medical frontier and that's neuroscience, our brains. And uh, that's what I think is gonna revolutionize our understanding is the fact that our, our neuroscientists are uncovering the mechanisms of action which will help us address neurodegenerative disorders and uh, address um, mental illnesses and addictions. And I don't know about anyone else, but I think that our neuroscientists are like our astronauts of today. They're my heroes. They're the ones that are going to change in the most real way the quality of life of every single one of us through the work they do and and of course, those who are mental health providers who are on the front lines trying to bring the latest and evidence-based treatment to their patients. This is transformative in the most fundamental way, um, and that's where I see this revolution taking place.
0: Love that. So, Patrick, on switching to more of a personal note for you, what's one thing that you've learned during the pandemic that will benefit you in 2021 and beyond?
1: I found that uh, the pandemic grounded me. I was going all the time, every three days, getting on a plane, doing this and that. And uh, I've got five children, 13 and younger. The youngest is two. This uh, grounded me. I'm, I'm at home reading to my kids every night. Had to adjust my whole life and Budget and everything else to accommodate, but I God did for me what I couldn't do for myself, which was get off the merry-go-round. And um, all I would say is that for me, I got to practice what I preach. In other words, if I believe in our future, I got to make sure my kids are on solid um, emotional ground, secure in themselves. I think they need to have boundaries so they feel embraced and. Um, I I want to be there for them in their lives, and 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 um, I'm I'm looking at the silver lining in this. One of the things that I've done is just really uh, make the gratitude list because, like everyone else, I can kind of feel overwhelmed by uh, the stresses of not getting what I want or losing what I have, as we say in recovery.
0: Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, as we wrap up here, I'd just like to do a a few rapid fire questions where you have a quick one word answer, maybe a couple words. But um, to start out, what's one thing that you do to stay healthy?
1: I get to bed not long after I put my kids to bed. I work out and I work out and I go to meetings every single day. So those are three. I didn't give you one. <laughs> this is a, you know, a mental, physical, and spiritual illness. So you got to deal with all three. Physically, you got to get enough sleep. Mentally, you got to worry about the cognitive behavioral uh, changes that you can make to put not put yourself at risk. And uh, spiritually, you got to love the people around you and can be connected to them.
0: And what is your favorite thing to do when you're not working?
1: really to spend time with my kids. I've got, as I said, five of them. They all need attention and love and uh, they need uh, singular attention. I gotta make sure I'm disciplined about the time I give each of them. And um, I'm, I'm blessed that, that I have them in my life and that I get to live my life also through them and their own development, the way they see the world.
0: And finally, what's your favorite book or something that you're currently reading?
1: I'm reading about uh, former President Jimmy Carter. Um, and uh, there's an, a book about him and the same period of time I'm reading about the man who uh, ran Washington about Jim Baker. Um, and uh, And I just read the President Obama's book as well. So I'm kind of like, Um, looking at the pattern of the last, my kind of lifetime to see where our country is going. Because like many people right now, I'm really lost in terms of where our country is going to end up. And I'm very fascinated about what history has to teach us in terms of the directions that we're going in. I do think we're all in it together and that uh, we need a sense of common uh, identity in our country, um, kind of forged by our uh, world war ii uh, veterans who were all in it fighting uh, side by side and and we need to be thinking that this democracy of ours is not going to just uh, survive uh, on its own uh, it's going to take active citizens to uh, preserve it because uh, left to our own devices people really uh, they like to uh unfortunately draw the battle lines and fight each other and, and diss each other. And we need systems to protect us from our worst instincts. And um, democracy is one of those uh, mechanisms and uh, it's evolved over time and it's, and it's now becoming um, hopefully more inclusive of Americans that have been too long disenfranchised. And uh, I think we're living in a very historic time. I'm a, I'm a student of history, obviously, because, my family has played such a big role in history. And, um, but I would tell everybody, we are um, really in a form of time in which direction we should be. It's an uncomfortable time, but it, it's one where the decisions we make will, will really last a long time. So um, we have to be mindful as to what we're doing uh, to make those decisions in, in, in preparation for our future.
0: Well, you're you're so inspirational, and I just want to thank you for your leadership. And thank you so much, Patrick, for joining this podcast today.
1: I'm grateful to be on. Thanks, Don, and keep up the great work.
0: we Will do. And for our listeners out there, thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope you walked away with what I did. In particular, we need to revolutionize the way mental health care is delivered in America. And we got to develop that esprit de corps that Patrick talked about around this issue and around making sure that we're treating and helping the whole person uh, in healthcare and with people's health. For more information about the Kennedy Forum, you can go to www.thekennedyforum.org. And join us next time as we continue to bring you a healthy dose of insights and perspectives on conversations with leaders who are transforming healthcare. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dosa Dialogue.